Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. I'm your host, Zach Bitter, and today I have a solo episode for you where I am going to touch on some topics that were submitted through listeners. So if you have a question or topic that you'd like me to do for a future episode like this type, feel free to send them to me. I've got a couple ways to reach out to me. One is just through my website at zachbitter.com. You could also send me an email at hplpodcast at gmail.com or reach out to me on one of my social media platforms, preferably Instagram at zachbitter or Twitter at zbitter. For today's topics, we have a couple that I'm going to dive into. Um, One is working out while sick, or as I kind of unpack that topic, I look at uh, the specific question asked, which had to do with upper respiratory type issues. And it was sort of a multi-part question in a sense of like, what is it like once you get this from a recovery standpoint, back to training standpoint? So I made sure to touch on that as well as just covering some of the risks along lines of getting sick or getting respiratory type illnesses when it comes to training, especially training hard. So taking a look at that, because I think we hear a lot about how exercise and healthy lifestyle is going to help prevent illness and things like that. And it definitely does in the grand scheme of things, but there is an acute time frame when you kind of wear your body down with like, say a big workout where you may be a little more susceptible to picking up some of these things. So I touch on that and maybe some things to consider when planning like bigger training sessions that could possibly compromise your immune system, even if it is temporary. Next one is cool downs. I touched a little bit on cool downs. I think most people, especially runners, endurance athletes sort of just come into the sport, assuming they need to warm up and cool down between or on the bookend side of different things, especially workouts that have moderate or higher intensity in them. And, uh, the specific question here was what about extending a cool down, like a lengthy cool down after a speed session or something like that in terms of whether there was any reason to do that or not. Uh, I ended actually unpacking cool downs altogether and looked at just like what the research actually suggests cool downs are and are not good for, because I do think sometimes we do them out of habit or out of assumption that they're good for one thing or the other, when in reality, uh, they may be either, I guess, not as good at what we maybe think they are or good for reasons outside of that. And I do want to make sure though, since I do dive into this, when you consider the research here, consider that this is kind of more holistic warm up and cool down versus like very specific to running. And the research here is what I would call like a lot of research, a work in progress. So probably something to think about as much as overhauling your entire setup uh, when it comes to, you know, the information that I share about, about this sort of thing for this particular episode. Um, For those of you who are interested about what's coming up on the podcast, there's a couple episodes up on the show Patreon page right now that I've already recorded. One is with Brad Kearns. Uh, I always like to talk to Brad every once in a while because he is a tinkerer and he's always up to something different. So I always want to kind of check in with him and see what he's doing uh, in the more recent time frame, whether it be his training protocol or his his nutrition. So if you're interested in that, you check that one out on the Patreon page or when it comes out to all other podcast platforms. Also, just recorded a podcast with Steve Magnus. So 
Steve Magnus has been someone that I have admired for quite some time. His coaching philosophy and approach has been something that has really guided me as an athlete and a coach and having him come on the show and just talk about some different stuff, including his most recent book, Do Hard Things, was an exciting interview for me. And that one is also up on the show Patreon page at the moment and will be coming out down the road when I release that one to all the other platforms. Also, I did a low carbohydrate endurance episode with Leighton Phillips. So if you're interested in kind of the fueling and the mindset behind like the hows and whys and the whens, which is an oftentimes a question people have in terms of fueling with low carbohydrate, uh, mostly because if you're not like strict keto or zero carb, then, you know, there is going to be some carbohydrate. And then a lot of people ask, well, with that, where, and that sort of thing. So we break down a lot of that kind of stuff with, with Leighton. That one is also up on the show, Patreon page too. So coming up in the future, I have uh, Dr. Dan Plews scheduled to record next week. So we fun to dive into some stuff with him. He's recently been coaching some very high end triathletes who've had some recent success. He has a lab in New Zealand. So I like talking to the guys like that because he has the knowledge of the research and where it's at. And he also has the knowledge of what he's seeing in the lab that maybe does not get published. So it's always fun to take a peek in there and see what's going on. That maybe is a bit of a foreshadowing of what we may see to come or just some interesting anecdotes that kind of cross his training table, so to speak. All right. So if you want to access those Patreon episodes and support the HBO podcast, you can do that by signing up for the show Patreon page. You can get to that by heading over to zachbitter.com forward slash HPO. There you will find links to the show Patreon page, other donation options, as well as the full catalog of all the episodes recorded to date with details in them as well. So if you're curious about catching up on some old episodes and want to see some topics and ones that are maybe pique your interest more, zachbitter.com forward slash HPO is a great spot to find out all that information. Also, if you would like to support the show, but through a different method, one of the best ways you can do this is simply liking, subscribing, and sharing the podcast episodes that you enjoy. So if you like the show as a whole, make sure you subscribe to it on your favorite podcast listening platform. If you like a specific episode, let your friends, family, and followers know on social media or in person. That helps me grow the listener base and ultimately bring more podcast episodes to you. If you are looking to do a race or train or just dial things in a little more specifically, I do have a bunch of coaching options on my website, zachbitter.com as well. Those range from pre-made plans that kind of follow my philosophy from 5k all the way up to hundred mile, different levels with each. I've got base building ones too, if you're just trying to lay that foundation I also have a plan that is focused for strength athletes who want to start playing around with a little bit of running. One of the more interesting things I saw, and I think this is byproduct partly of the pandemic, actually, when gyms closed and people decided, hey, I'm going to work out one way or the other, and running was a, an option they had available to them. Uh, seeing a lot more strength athletes decide to try out even ultra marathons or at least some endurance races. So I put together a plan for the strength athlete who wants to try out some endurance without necessarily losing all their gym gains either. So if that's interesting to you, you can find that on my website. I also offer personalized one-on-one -on -one coaching. If you're interested in working directly with me, that can scale all the way up to frequent contact. So if interested in that stuff, 
head over to zachbitter.com. Also a quick personal update. Uh, it is coming to the end of January here, and I am excited to get some racing in this year. I ended the year with a hundred miler at the Brazos Bend 100, 100 mile uh, in December. So sometimes when you have a late in the year race like that, it takes a little bit to get back to racing in the following year. But fortunately or unfortunately for me, I guess it depends how you look at it, is I had uh, a pretty light race schedule last year with uh, with my ankle issue that I had to kind of get under control. So I bounced back from that Brazos 100 mile pretty quick, and I don't have a lot of residual race fatigue from uh, the prior year in my legs heading into the new year. So I'm probably going to get things rolling a little bit quicker. My general timeline is I'm looking to probably peak mean, be ready to kind of really wring myself dry around June. So that is kind of the trajectory there, but I'm going to be doing a fair bit of racing in the, in the path towards that. So the first race of the year for me is actually coming up quite quickly in about a week and a half at the Rocky raccoon, 100 mile, Nicole, my wife and I are actually both going to be doing that event and, uh, testing some things out. My main goals there are to, uh, just fine tune some things I think, and just test out a little bit different things with some pacing strategy and some feeling strategy type stuff that I'm a little bit curious with and also get an idea where the fitness is at as well. So it'll be fun to head out to Huntsville, Texas and get in that five loop, 20 mile trail loop they have and uh, see how it goes. If you're going to be at the Rocky Raccoon 100, I know it's a fairly recognizable race in terms of ultra running. So if you're going to be out there, shout out, let me know you're going to be there. I'd love to say hi, either at the pack of pickup or out on the course at some point during the day, if you see you out there. So that's kind of what I got going on here. I want to give a shout out to one of the show's primary sponsors for 2023. And that is Element T. Element T is an electrolyte supplement that comes in these really cool, convenient packets. They are small, very packable, and very easy to use. I'll mix one packet in about two liters of water. That's the concentration I'm typically looking for. When I got my sweat test done, I came out at 614 milligrams per liter of sweat loss. So one of those packets goes a fairly long way for me because it has over 1200 milligrams of electro electrolytes in it, including a thousand milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium and 60 milligrams of magnesium. My favorite flavors at the moment are watermelon for the fruit flavors and chocolate for the more warm beverage flavors. They have a cool setup at Element T where you can get uh, fruitier flavors for things that you want to mix into like some plain water while you're out there on your workout or just sipping fluids throughout the day. Uh, they have a non-flavored option if you don't like that sort of thing, if you want just that plain taste, uh, but still get the benefits of the electrolytes. And they also have their warm beverage option, which is chocolate. And then occasionally they'll do some seasonal stuff too, with like mint chocolate or caramel chocolate and things like that. So my protocol is I'll usually do about a half a packet in my cup of coffee in the morning. If I'm doing something a little longer or something in the warmer weather, I'll usually have a packet of watermelon or one of their other flavors out there while I'm running as well, usually depending on how much fluids I'm going to plan on taking in. So if you're curious about checking it out right now, they have this really cool deal going where if you purchase a product from them, they are going to send you a free sample pack. If you go to them through drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO, that will get you that free sample pack and allow you 
to try out every one of their flavors. And then if you find one that you're like, this is my flavor, I want more of this for my workouts and my races and things like that, you know exactly which one is going to meet your needs from a flavor standpoint. So check them out at drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO. Links that are also going to be in the show notes as well as the show sponsor landing page, which is just zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. Specifically, the questions are how to deal with respiratory infections during training. Do you notice that you get sick more often while training volume gets high and when you just train through it and when to rest? So I'm going to answer this one a little more directly because there's like a few questions within this one that all I think are really interesting things to look at. Like, is it more at risk for an endurance athlete to get a respiratory infection during training? Do you notice an increased frequency of this with this population? And then when to train through it and when to rest and how to kind of proceed once you've found yourself in a situation where you have that respiratory infection. Uh, the next question is specifically your opinion on long cool downs after tempo VO2 max workouts with fatigue in the legs, your form is reduced. So isn't it detrimental to go do a long cool down for this one? I'm going to open this one up a bit and just talk about cool downs in general. And one of the reasons why I'm going to do that is because I think cool downs can oftentimes be done for the wrong reasons. I think there's application for them. I do cool downs after workouts. I prescribe cool downs to my, my athletes when I'm coaching them after workouts, but I do think there's maybe a, some misconceptions on what they're actually doing or what they're actually good for, or at the very least, uh, some reason to believe that we're over-representing certain things that they're doing for us versus others. And then I will also answer that question directly as terms of like, where would you maybe be or what value would you maybe find by having an extended long cool down after like a, a session like that? All right. So that first question is from Hans Weber. Hans asked how to deal with a respiratory infection during training. Do you notice that you get sick more often while training volume gets high and when you just train through it and when to rest? All right. So first let's cover upper respiratory infections and high training loads in general. Heavy and or or heavy training and or training in the cold environments do increase the athlete's risk to develop upper respiratory tract infections. So athletes who are considered healthier than the normal population are more prone to these infections of the respiratory tract due to the lowering of the immune system in the time frames uh, around these heavy training sessions. And I'll talk about this a little more specifically. There's this like window theory of like this time frame after a hard training session or a long training session that leaves you a little more susceptible. Um, but before that, let's just dive into some of the research that I found. Uh, they had some research that during a competition in the cold, the incidence of upper respiratory tract infections was very high. So they took a Finnish team at the Olympics and 20 out of 44, 45% of these athletes and 22 out of 68 or 32% of staff members of this Finnish team experienced symptoms of common cold during a median stay of 21 days at a winter Olympic at the winter Olympic games, showing the athlete is more prone to illness by about 13%. Um, it is interesting that they kind of cross-checked that with the staff members. So then they also likely had a population that was in the same environment because 
when I first see that, I'm like, okay, they're at the Olympic games. They may be in like big indoor settings with a lot of other people with uh, potentially people from other countries where, you know, you know, they may be exposed to germs. They're not normally uh, around and things like that. But since the staff members were also kind of cross-checked with that, it makes it interesting to see that the athletes did have that 13% higher uh, rate there. Um, also athletes participating in marathons in normal or hot environments which should potentially lower their risk relative to the cold environments showed still a two to six fold increased upper respiratory tract infection risk during the one to two weeks post-race. So in a large group of 2,311 endurance runners, they found that nearly 13% reported illness in the week after what was the Los Angeles marathon race compared to just 2.2% of control runners. Um, so these are all things worth noting. I think like when you have these big training sessions, like racing a marathon or doing like one of your bigger workouts and things like that, it puts you in a position where you may, if possible, want to consider where, what environmental situations you're putting yourself into after these, if you can help it. So an example like that would be like, you do your big heavy workout for the week or biggest heaviest workout for the week. Um, if possible, it might be best to avoid areas where you're going to be with a lot of other people in close proximity or something like that, or in really cold. Like, so let's say you finish your work on, you stand out in the cold for an hour or something like that, that might increase your, your, your susceptibility to something like that. Uh, anyway, let's, keep going here. The decrease in exercise performance after an upper respiratory tract infection can last up to two to four days. So even in subsequent days, you, you can kind of still have like a potential higher risk than you would otherwise. And if you do start an endurance race or event with a respiratory tract infection or symptoms of it, you're two third times more likely to to, to not complete that race. So if you're, if you're thinking about like, what is your likelihood of completion when you already have these symptoms, it's certainly going to be lower than it would be if you didn't. Um, as I mentioned before, this kind of window theory or this time frame where you're the most at risk, I've mentioned some, some time frames that are maybe a little more lengthy, but the one that I think is, is kind of interesting is there's this window of time described as about one to nine hours post heavy endurance stimulus where defenses are decreased uh, by the most. Uh, this will obviously increase your upper respiratory tract infection risk. Uh, it may be something to consider, like I said before, when planning out what your schedule will be like and when possible, avoiding or minimizing environments of high risk during the hours following a big training session. Example would be like finish a big training session and then go sit in a coffee shop or go grocery shopping or something like that where you're going to be exposed to a lot of other people close quarters and things like that. With all that said, there's some evidence to suggest that moderate exercise can be protective, whereas the low to high training loads can leave someone more exposed. So um, I'm not sure why that would necessarily be. I think the higher training loads make sense, the lower, maybe not so much. Um, my only theory there would be, I think, generally speaking, a healthier person who's fit and has a well-planned training program that makes them more fit and healthy are likely going to be more robust, but there's going to be these points in times where they're a little more vulnerable, like after training session. But I would be interested to see like where the lower, um, the lower training load, uh, vulnerability would come from. 
the hard thing about all of this is there's a lot of environmental factors, as we've kind of talked about, that do contribute to this. So take, for example, like the cold weather or even something like pollution. So like an athlete who is training outside a lot and doing that in either cold environments or environments that are higher rates of pollution, environmental pollution, will have an increased risk. And they're just simply going to be more exposed to these conditions, which is going to kind of exasperate that risk factor. Um, proper training load with high quality sleep hygiene is generally accepted as a good strategy for lowering risk. So what does that mean? Essentially not trying to overreach with like these big hero sessions, giving matching recovery post larger training load sessions is going to be helpful. And then potentially improving sleep by working out further from bedtime may be useful tools to lower risk. So when you think about it, if we're talking about the recovery portion of the session being an important time frame to avoid this sort of thing. You know, part of the recovery process is good quality sleep. So there is evidence to suggest that if you do a workout, especially a hard workout right before bed, that's going to compromise your sleep quality. So if you can help it and you're in this situation where you know you're going to be putting yourself at a higher risk for an upper respiratory tract uh, infection, then trying to minimize some of these things that could potentially pile up and make you the most vulnerable is probably smart to think about. So like I said, cold weather, pollution, polluted areas, um, working out hard before you're going to bed, generally just overreaching and training and things like that, or, you know, pushing through a training day where you're better off having a rest day and, you know, making sure you're matching those workloads with proper recovery in between. Uh, in terms of recommendations, about returning to exercise. So this is maybe going to get to more of the heart of the question or the last part of the question of like, once you have it, what do you do? How do you know when you're ready to return to training? What's kind of the protocol? So the recommendations to return after exercise uh, from something like the flu, cold, bronchitis, they are kind of vague. And part of this is because one of the major reasons is that each person's response to illness is going to vary by a by a fair bit. So you have to kind of maybe start with some general advice, but be willing to adjust as certain things present themselves. So generally speaking, most healthy people who have something like a cold, mild bronchitis, no fever or significant cough, they can continue to exercise during this illness. However, you initially do want to cut your intensity and duration in about half. So you find yourself with cold, mild bronchitis, something like that, it may be wise to do like a deload week, just move your deload week to that. So you're able to kind of like reduce that training load and volume by a bit and get through that cold before kind of resuming like the full, uh, full portion of your training. So if you feel good later in the day after a lighter workout, that is a sign that you can kind of gradually start to increase how much you're doing during that next session. But if you finish that training session even if it's light and you feel exhausted after the exercising, it's best to just take off an extra day before working out again. Cause that's a sign that you sort of kind of gave yourself a little bit of a setback. So look for that, that progression in recovery versus regression. It's kind of the same advice with an injury. If you have something that's an injury, but it's not bad enough where you have to completely stop training and some movements actually be better for it. You do want to watch other parts of the day to see like, am I making gradual improvements from one day to the next at these certain points because sometimes you know running with a 
slight injury can actually make it feel better when you have that movement. But then later in the day, it flares up worse than it was the day prior, which is a sign you want to like readjust your training load. Um, with things like the flu or any respiratory illness that causes like a high fever, muscle aches, fatigue, you do want to wait until that fever is gone before getting back to exercise. Your first workout back should be light. So you don't get out of breath and you want to progress slowly as you return to your normal routine, you may be tempted to ramp it up with these situations. I think a lot of times you get a situation where you have an upper respiratory illness, the flu or something like that. And your first thought is, okay, I just missed a couple of days of training because I was in bed or trying to recover from this. Now I need to catch up in the temptation to kind of like overthrottle a bit is there. You want to make sure you don't have a setback though and cost yourself even more time because you you picked the wrong path forward after that that setback. So it is still best to go with low intensity and go slow, short duration, and just confirm that you are making progress later in the day versus having a regression later in the day. All right, that's what I got for that one. So if there's any more follow-up questions or things you'd like me to touch on relative to that, let me know. Otherwise, we are going to jump into the next question from Jonas Narcalunas. And Jonas wants to know my opinion on long cooldowns after tempo VO2 max workouts. Uh, generally speaking, you're going to have fatigue in your legs after these. Form may be reduced. Is it detrimental to go do a long cooldown after a session like that? So I'm going to jump into cooldowns in general, touch on some of what the research says about them, what we maybe know, don't know, where we maybe overemphasize what they're good for or don't, and then try to address Jonas's question specifically at the end. So when we look at cooldowns in general, they're likely good practice in my opinion, but they're also likely done for the wrong reasons by a lot of people. So this isn't necessarily anyone's fault. It's just kind of a byproduct of the years of tradition that after being more thoroughly studied have been at least partly proven inaccurate or at least less beneficial than it may come across at first at first glance. So let's start with some common thoughts about cooldowns that are possibly overstated or maybe even false. Um, there is a actually a review that I think was published in 2018 that looked at just a whole bunch of different things from like sports performance, injury prevention, delayed onset muscle soreness, removal of metabolic products, things like that, that looked at where the research currently stands. Uh, the authors were Van Horn and Jonathan Pike or Peak, And um, they, uh, they outlined a lot of that stuff. So I'm going to go over some of those here before we get specifically into to Jonas's specific question. Um, from sport, from a sports performance standpoint, it looks like it's unlikely that a cooldown will directly improve performance done greater than four hours after the initial training session. However, if you have another workout shortly thereafter, generally speaking, cooling down will be helpful. So an example of this may be you go out for short intervals, and then within an hour, you are going to be at the gym doing lower body strength. Doing a short cool down after the short intervals will likely help the following strength session. You can maybe argue that that's at least partly a warm up as well. But either way, I think that that would be a situation where you know, skipping your cool down would maybe not be advised and you're going to be better off kind of closing that, closing, closing that gap between those two sessions with a light cool down. 
Um, in terms of next day's performance, there's some conflicting findings as far as this goes. Some studies do report like a small to moderate benefit of an active cool down compared with a passive cool down. So something like a massage. However, most studies report trivial benefit for next day performance. It's very important to remember that these studies investigated high intensity performance. So stuff like jumping or sprinting. And we likely do need more research specific to kind of how this plays out with endurance athletes when it comes to this type of question. So an example that would be like, if we go out and do a workout, a running workout, the next, and then we do a cool down the next day, if you did like a jumping test or a sprinting test, that cool down you did after that running workout the day before likely would not improve your results in that jumping or sprinting. What we probably need more research on would be whether, let's say you do those short intervals that I described before you do a cool down. Then if you have like, say a 60 minute easy run the next day, does it benefit you to do that cool down for that 60 minute easy run versus something a little more explosive, like jumping or sprinting. All right. The next interesting thing is these removal of metabolic byproducts. So I think it's worth noting here. A lot of times when people think of metabolic byproducts, especially with running and endurance sports, their minds kind of go to lactate. When in reality, this appears in more recent research to not be the byproduct of concern. Lactate was always something where it was like, all right, this is problematic. It's what's causing the, the burning sensation in my legs. I need to get it out. I need to flush it out of there. Um, it's presence does accurately predict the presence of other byproducts that likely do contribute to um, things that we want to kind of get, get out of the system, so to speak, even though it isn't necessarily the one that needs to be incriminated. So since measuring lactate, it tends to be a little easier than some of these other pro byproducts and it does match with them nicely, you can use it as a, as a proxy to determine kind of where these other ones are at and therefore still consider it as a useful thing to measure if you're going to do that. Um, anyway, a large body of research has shown that the, a variety of low to moderate intensity active cooldown protocols are more effective than a passive cooldown for removing lactate from the blood and muscle tissue. Uh, there is some conflicting findings showing no significance. It's also worth noting that blood lactate concentrations in the blood after high intensity exercise returns to resting levels pretty quickly. Anyway, it's usually within like even as short as 20 minutes and maybe up to 120 minutes. So it may not be all that consequential to speed this process up unless, as I mentioned before, you're going to go and you're going to do a training stimulus shortly thereafter. So like those short intervals followed by that, that gym session. All right. Um, next is delayed onset muscle soreness or DOM. So this is just basically like, if you do a hard workout, you know, you might feel fine the rest of the day, not too, not too bad, but then you wake up the next morning and your muscles have this deep soreness and you can feel it in there when you like flex that muscle. So what do we know about this? We know active cool down does increase blood flow to muscles and skin. So this may help factors associated with muscle soreness, but it's not all that clear. Most studies among both recreational and active individuals and professional athletes have found no significant effect of an active cool down on delayed onset muscle soreness or tenderness at different times following exercise. And these range from immediately after all the way up to about 96 hours after the exercise. And it was compared with a passive cool down. So 
However, you may want to think there is some evidence to suggest that an active uh, cool down and trained athletes may experience significantly less soreness four to five hours after this active cool down, but that is based on a mean subjective rating by soccer players. So um, take that for what you will. Whenever you get into the sub subjective rating type of stuff, you sort of open up the door for like potential placebo effects and things like that. Or yeah, I mean, I guess basically would be a placebo effect, but like if this, this athlete, the soccer player just grew up their entire life thinking after I do a workout, I do a cool down and that's going to make me feel less sore later in the day, then they may go in assuming that's going to be the case and then report that to be the likely scenario um, based on that. So I think what's maybe a little more interesting then would be these indirect markers of muscle damage. So we, for these, we can look past the perception and into the actual muscle damage that's been done, and then maybe assess whether the role of an active cool down is going to be positive or negative. So studies looking from immediately up to 84 hours after report conflicting findings. So there's two studies that report significantly faster recovery, while three others found no significant difference. So why would that be? This could be due to the level of muscle damage or what markers are being used to assess the muscle damage. It's important. It's, it's very possible that like the markers used to assess muscle damage in the two positive studies do not actually correspond to faster reduction in actual muscle damage and therefore sort of like miss, miss, uh, reporting the fact that, um, there's not, not as much muscle damage there, uh, so that one's maybe a little harder to tease out where it's right or wrong. And in situations like that, I, I mean, I usually think like, you know, if lean on your own experience to some degree, then if you feel better or you feel like your workouts are more quality, high quality following an active cool down after a, a, a training session, and it's not problematic in your schedule and things like that, you can sort of take the precautionary principle with that and just and just do it. But do be mindful, as we'll talk about later, about not overdoing your training load and then compromising your future training by overreaching, by adding too much extra stimulus post-workout. Um, next session was neuromuscular function. Uh, so like your response time, essentially, after these sessions, uh, it did you not find did you not find any significant on recovery of neuromuscular function with an active cool down post high intensity exercise? With that said, these studies did report small benefits, just not enough to be considered significant. So if you feel like your overall movement patterns during the day are better after an active cool down, again, probably no harm in doing unless you're overreaching by doing so. Next one is just stiffness or range of motion. So essentially mobility for this findings did not suggest an active cool down to improve stiffness or range of motion. Next one is injury rate, which I think is one that people are probably very interested in. Uh, it doesn't appear to be the case that an active cool down will reduce injury risk in runners. There is some evidence it may be beneficial in like dance aerobics. Uh, this area likely just needs more research and specifically focused on the type of cool down, its duration, and be sport specific so that we know as endurance runners, like, hey, if we do this cool down after a hard training session, does that help with injury prevention or not? Um, you know, when it gets to injury rate and injury prevention, stuff like that, it's like, it's also, there's, there's sort of this give and take as well, where, um, you, anytime you're adding more activity, I think there is going to be some risk to increase your injury rate, regardless of whether like on paper, it does play out well. So, 
Um, I don't think you have to like force a cooldown in order to like, you know, justify like trying to reduce your injury risk. That's probably not the the best reason to do it. Um, finally, uh, we have just some long-term adaptive response. So what happens over time if you're doing active cooldowns after workouts versus no active cooldowns? So this is an interesting one to me because I always think like this removes the acute and gets into like what endurance trainers are oftentimes more curious as what's the cumulative impact of what I'm doing on the end result. So there is some evidence that including an active cool down after training produces a higher anaerobic lactate threshold after four weeks of training compared with passive cool down. This is actually an interesting point to me because perhaps it begins to get at the original question a bit around longer cool downs or cool downs in general, which is the extra training volume acquired through adding a cool down after your training session this approach resulted in an increase in fitness. So at the end of the day, this will likely be a training load tolerance question though. If you have the capacity to add the extra training load and successfully do it, benefits will likely follow assuming that you have proper recovery, proper nutrition, proper sleep, et cetera. All these things that are going to help promote that training stimulus showing up as a positive, uh, as long as those are all accounted for as well. Um, so like in terms of what I would do with a long cooldown at a hard session, I would be very mindful of um, some of the things that you mentioned. If you're doing this cooldown and you notice your form is deteriorating, the quality is very, very low, uh, you're likely pushing past the training load tolerance that will allow you to maximize your potential on the next quality training session. I wouldn't push through it, but if you're in a situation where it does fit in with your training load, you're trying to add a little bit of extra volume to your plan to hit numbers that you know do fit within that range of training load stimulus you're looking for, this could just be a good opportunity to get that extra volume. And you know, some people may be more motivated to add some of that slower running after the um, after the the workout itself. Because sometimes I know I'll go out for like a speed session. You work hard and there's a different kind of experience with that. And then when you kind of transition into a cool down jog, all of a sudden, like, you know, that, that cool down feels good because you've slowed down. There's not as much pressure. Uh, it almost feels relaxing to a degree. So if you can capitalize on that kind of feel good and get that volume that you're trying to acquire to meet your training load expectations, then then I think that's probably a good idea. Assuming, like I said, you're following proper recovery, nutrition, sleep, and all those things that are going to help actually absorb that training stimulus. And then of course we need to be like defined long, right? Cause long is going to be different for anybody else. Most cool downs that they assess with some of the research I looked at, they're looking at relatively short cool downs of like at most maybe 20 minutes, but um, five to 10 minutes is often enough in some of these cases. So yeah. So in summary, there isn't great support in the research that active cooldowns are going to do, or at least do the degree on what may have historically been thought things like greatly improve recovery, reduce injury risk to a high level, improve things like mobility and delayed onset muscle soreness, things like that. But if the goal is to hit specific training volume, which a well-planned training program will be doing, then including an active cooldown is a way to add that extra 
low or even moderate intensity exercise to your program. So again, specifically addressing Jonah's question about longer cooldowns would simply be an extension to this. If you have the training load capacity, a proper balance between stress and recovery that does not pull future training opportunities off the table by overreaching, an extended cooldown is an option that can be considered. Um, I'll add a final note too uh, on cooldowns in general. There is a whole side of to the to sport and the activity of running, and specifically endurance sport that is driven by things like motivation your drive and desire to push hard when presented with adversity, like in a race day setting. Runners who race to their limit can appreciate that moment that you ask yourself, can I go a bit harder or can I continue this effort for the remainder of the race? Um, the way a plan is structured should consider how this applies to these type of situations. Along with this, the general purpose and takeaway from the practice should also be considered. So another example would be some runners may find that easy cool down after a hard work to be mentally and emotionally therapeutic. So although it may not necessarily get you to your next workout quicker or recover sooner, if it isn't negatively impacting your goals and it isn't treading on your next session, it's definitely worth considering that side as well. Um, I will put a link to uh, that 2018 research publication uh, in the show notes if folks want to comb through, because there were some other areas in there that I didn't talk about specifically that are, are maybe interesting to, to some folks in, in terms of like what cooldowns may or may not do. But uh, other than that, if you have any follow-ups about this question or the previous question, feel free to reach out to me or any new topics. I would love to hear them. Again, you can reach me at hbopodcast at gmail.com over email or shoot me a note on socials at Zach Bitter on Instagram at ZBitter on Twitter. Hey folks, just a quick reminder that this episode's sponsors are my friends at LMNT Electrolytes. They have a wide range of electrolyte supplements and are currently offering listeners to this podcast a free sample pack with purchase. If you are interested in checking them out and letting them know that you came to them through here, you can go to drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO or to the show sponsor landing page, which is just zackbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. Links to that are in the show notes as well. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. Hey folks, thanks for checking out this episode of the podcast. For those of you who are regular listeners, you'll likely know I'm also a professional endurance athlete and coach. If you're looking for a little extra help with your training and programming, I do offer individualized coaching options where you can work directly with me one-on-one. I'll personalize your plan and even scale it up to email collaboration and regular consultations. You can also access either of those on their own if you just want to contact me as you're navigating your fitness journey. I also have some ready-made plans. The ready-made plans follow my coaching philosophy and they scale from five kilometers all the way up to a hundred miles and come in three different levels. So whether you're a beginner, intermediate or advanced, I've got something for you there. And most recently, I also just added a strength athletes guide to endurance program, which will help someone who is primarily a strength athlete who wants to either do an endurance event for the fun of it, bolster up their cardiovascular fitness, 
or just try something out, try something new. So those programs are built to be able to supplement a strength program. So you won't have to give up on your gains in the gym while you're going after some running or endurance related fitness goals. You can find all those things on my website at zackbitter.com. Thanks for checking out this episode.